Church, would you please stand with me as I read God's Word? This is the second week on Genesis 2, 18 through 25, and every word is powerful. So here's the passage. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's Word. Please be seated. So church, right at the outset, uh, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. I'm going to make a helper. And so, we would expect for the next step, God to make a woman, to make Eve. But that's not what happens. In Genesis 2, after God makes that statement, we have probably a, quite a long process of God bringing animal after animal, bird after bird, uh, all kinds of creatures by Adam for him to name. For example, in verse 20, we read, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So why is God bring all the animals by at this time? Well, that last line gave us the clue that probably Adam is saying all these animals come by, all these birds come by, hyenas and horses and lions and tigers and bears and all these things come by. Perhaps they come by in partners, in pairs, like later uh, at Noah's Ark. But uh, the point of all of that is, is revealed in verse 20, which says, but for Adam, there was not found a partner, partner fit for him. And probably he is realizing that more and more. They've got partners. I don't have a partner. And the man is fundamentally alone. By the way, the fact that God gives to man the privilege of naming the animal world is a reflection of Genesis 1.28, where God says that man has the opportunity to rule over creation, to steward in God's place over all the created universe, and part of that is naming. Just like when a couple today has a baby, they get to name that baby. They have oversight. So God gives Adam that privilege. So Adam does not have a partner fit for him, suitable for him. Now we saw last week, if you were here, that the word helper, which is the first basic word in the Bible, Referring to marriage, to give us a clue to what marriage is about, that term helper has no notion of inferiority like the English term helper. In fact, it is a term that is used mostly of God in the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament. And so it simply means someone who's got resources and gifts that you lack, that you need. And so that's 
God's picture of marriage. The woman for the man by implication, the man for the woman. They each have resources and gifts to meet what the other lacks. So together, marriage's purpose and point is not to accumulate possessions, but to develop persons, to help that person become all that he or she uh, was created by God to be, to fill gaps, to help that person thrive spiritually, to thrive in every way. And so if you're married, that is your fundamental mindset. How can I help my spouse? That's my focus. How can I help my spouse? So there was not a found a helper fit for Adam. So, verse 21, God now is ready to create the woman. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Must have been a deep one. And while he slept, took his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Now, if you're back with us some weeks ago, we, we saw Genesis 2 when God created Adam. Now, remember, Genesis 1 is the wide-angle view, the overview of creation, just the big picture. But Genesis 2 is the detail about day 6 when God creates man and woman, the high point of creation. So now we've got the detail. Genesis 2, 7, we have the detail about man, and God takes dirt to make man, to make Adam. Now, it's interesting when it comes to creating Eve, God does not take dirt to create Adam. He takes the man's a body part of the man, and what body part he takes, takes the rib of the man. Some people uh, have, have wondered, you know, why the rib, and, and uh, we don't know, it doesn't say, but uh, it is curved, and some say that, well, women have more curves than men, and men like that. Um, more likely, the fact that Eve was made from Adam just underscores that they are made of the same stuff. They're equals. They're equal partners. That's the biblical idea. They belong together, in fact. Husband and wife, Adam and Eve. They're made for each other. They share a fundamental nature. They belong together. Someone put it this way. Woman was created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him and near to his heart to be loved by him. And that certainly expresses a biblical portrait and perspective on marriage. You know, Adam uh, has his side uh, opened up and uh, uh, closed, placed the wound. The New Testament speaks of a second Adam. Who is that? It's Jesus. That's right. Jesus Christ at times is compared and contrasted with Adam. So we get the first Adam and what 1 Corinthians calls the second Adam. And the first Adam and the second Adam are representatives of the entire human race. All of our destinies are found in either the first Adam or the second Adam. One note here is that both of them had their sides pierced, didn't they? The first Adam had his side pierced, and that meant life for Eve. The second Adam had his side pierced, and that meant life for everyone who would believe, our Savior. And by the way, that is the perspective that we should read the Old Testament from. We don't always uh, have that kind of a, a close correspondence, but the theme of the Old Testament is Jesus. Do you know that every single lamb, bull, or goat that was ever sacrificed in the Old Testament, 10,000 times 10,000, every single one pointed to the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sin of the world. The theme of the Bible 
Old Testament and New Testament is Jesus. And we have these clues, even perhaps this one, that uh, a faint foreshadowing of the second Adam who was to come and through his death gave life to all who would believe. So here is the first wedding when God creates Eve and brings her to Adam. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, the second Adam, he did his first miracle at a wedding. He honored marriage and honored weddings. John 2, at the wedding at Cana, uh, Jesus was present. And at the very first wedding back in Genesis 2, uh, God was the only witness, but God was there. He was present. Of course, God, God the Father, does not have a physical body, but uh, He was there. And uh, you can imagine that His delight as He creates Eve, just right, finally, the right partner for Adam, brings her by to Adam as a father giving away a bride. And you can imagine His smile and tender love as that happens. So how does Adam respond to Eve? Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Somebody has joked that this means in Hebrew, wow. And uh, that may not be quite it, but there is emotion and excitement. They say, last, finally, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, can you imagine this scene? Can you imagine if you had been there kind of watching this scene? Here's Adam. And now God creates Eve, and they see each other for the first time, and uh, they're naked, and there is no shame, because before the fall, you know, uh, marriage is completely good, uh, sex is good, sex in marriage is good, the human body is good, all that God created is good, and that's God's perspective. And in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. So, God creates Eve out of Adam's rib and the, the, the grandeur and the mystery of this. One writer said, the glory of the man is the acknowledgement that the woman was created for him. The glory of the woman is the acknowledgement that man is incomplete without her. The humility of the woman is the acknowledgement that she was made for him. The humility of the man is the acknowledgement that he is incomplete without her. Both share an equal dignity, honor, and worth. Each is necessarily the completion of the other. Each is necessarily dependent upon the other. You know, unless you have the gift of singleness or, you know, life circumstances that came out in marriage, you see a completion, one who fills gaps and meets needs. John Eldridge in his book, Wild at Heart, talked about the, the, the way the creation built through Genesis 1. He said, there's a reason that man is captivated by a woman. Eve is the crown of creation. And if you follow the Genesis narrative carefully, you'll see that each new stage of creation is better than the one before. First, all is formless, empty, and dark. God begins to fashion the raw materials like an artist working from a rough sketch or a lump of clay. Light and dark, land and sea, earth and sky is beginning to take shape. With a word, the whole floral kingdom adorns the earth. Sun, moon, and stars fill the sky. Surely and certainly, his work expresses greater detail and definition. Next comes fish and fowl, porpoises and red-tailed hawks. The wild animals are next, all those amazing creatures. A trout is a wonderful creature, but a horse is truly magnificent. And can you hear the crescendo starting to swell like a great symphony, building and surging higher and higher? 
Then comes Adam, the triumph of God's handiwork. It is not to any member of the animal kingdom that God says, you are my very image, the icon of my likeness. Adam bears the likeness of God in his fierce, wild, passionate heart. And yet, there is one more finishing touch. There is Eve. Creation comes to its high point, its climax with her. She is God's finishing touch. And all Adam can say is, wow. Eve embodies the beauty and the mystery and the tender vulnerability of God as the apex and the climax of God's creation. Now, note that Adam fully receives the woman that God brings him. And in some ways, in our passage here, that's the, that's the applicational point in verses 19 through 23. Starts off in verse 18, a very clear application. Verses 24 and 25, we'll see very clear application. But Adam receives his spouse and how we need to fully receive the spouse that God has given us rather than looking for some mythical spouse that doesn't exist. Either some mythical spouse in our workplace or a mythical spouse on the TV screen who doesn't exist. Fully receive with gratitude the man or the woman that God has given to you. The Bible never says, hey, marry the one you love. It says love the one you're married to. Love your spouse. Love that one. Fully receive him and her as God's gift to you. Wives, you have all your husband longs for in a woman. You're what he's designed to need. You have all you need to love your husband well. Husbands, you have all your wife longs for in a man. You are what she is designed to need. You have all you need to love your wife well. Do battle with hell itself for the sake of your spouse and for the sake of your family. So Adam and Eve are both on the scene, husband and wife. Now at this point, we've, we've, been, we've had the description of the creation, and now we have a commentary, a two-verse commentary. This is God's reflection on marriage. Verse 24 and 25. Verse 24, here's God's commentary, his perspective on marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And that nakedness, the physical nakedness, depicts there in the Garden of Eden the emotional trust and transparency that exists between Adam and Eve. And that's God's ideal for every marriage. Now here, there's no sin, there's no barriers, there's no shame, there's nothing between them. There is trust and there's transparency. And the physical nakedness depicts the emotional and spiritual intimacy that marriage, uh, that we long for in marriage. Now, verse 24, um, obviously God is not talking about Adam and Eve because he says, therefore a man will leave his father and mother. But based on, on what God did with Adam and Eve, uh, God is describing marriage uh, for all time. This is his commentary. There is no more important principle in the Bible than right here on marriage. Jesus quotes it in the New Testament. Paul quotes it in the New Testament. It is the single most uh, fundamental and foundational statement on marriage everywhere, and our culture largely ignores it. Church, these are the words of God. He created marriage, and He created you. He knows what we need in marriage, and we are neglecting what God says about marriage to our great harm and to the harm of our kids. 
how could I appeal to you more strongly that we ought to be different than people who aren't, aren't followers of Christ? But yet the divorce rate is just as high in the church as outside the church. And I would humbly beg you to give attention and obedience to what God says in the Bible. And we need the Spirit of God this morning to, to soften and change our hearts because there is no greater quagmire and mess in our society than with the family. And so many problems flow out of that. The rampant divorce that your human heart was never designed for. I realize many of you have been divorced. You've gone through the trauma of that. I'm not talking about uh, past things. If you went through a, a marriage for a divorce for whatever reason, claim the grace of God, which is bigger than our sin, and move forward. But for those of you who are married right now or who will get married in the future, follow God's instructions. By the power of the Spirit, we desperately today need the power of the Spirit to soften hearts, to bring forgiveness, to bring humility, to bring other-centeredness rather than selfishness. And I would pray that for some of you today, for many of you today, this will be a fresh start. Oh, God, forgive me. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. That today would be a fresh start. And I am appealing to you these last two weeks. I have appealed to you. Would you please pray with me for God to heal marriages at Wood's Edge? Would you? Would you? Three essential principles. Leave, cleave, become one flesh. First principle is leave. There must be a leaving before a cleaving. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, when it comes to verse 24, the key verse in all the Bible on marriage that's quoted several times in the New Testament, the very first principle listed list there is you leave your parents. Now, isn't that interesting? Really? That's, the, that's such a key thing? I wish I could tell you, over 35-plus years of being a pastor, how many marriages I have seen that have been crippled right here because mom and dad still control things, and it interferes with the couple. And they are crippled from the outset. And so God in his wisdom says, okay, if you're, you know, young adults and you're getting married, leave, leave. Psychologists will call this individuation. And from the time your, your baby is born uh, to the time that baby reaches somewhere around the age of 18, there is a process of, of, of increasing independence from you. Let them go to the nursery. Let them have a babysitter. Let them go to the camp. Let them have some independence appropriately as they grow up. And by the time they're 18 or 20, hopefully they'll be emotionally mature enough to leave mom and dad and cleave to another mate. But if there is no leaving, the, marriage is, the new marriage is crippled. What this means is that, couple, don't be unduly dependent upon your parents. What it means for the parents is let them leave. Give them your advice when they ask you for it. And they're probably not going to ask you for it. Little space here. The first principle for marriage, leaving. It's a severance. The second principle is cleaving. That's a permanence. Because the Hebrew word is a very strong word. It was used, for example, of skin uh, sticking to the, to the bones. Uh, the Hebrew word was used of a stain on a 
You know, I got some stains on my face, some kind of old age markers, and they're stuck there. Uh, So the point is permanence. Leave your father and mother and hold fast or cleave to your mate. The point is permanence. Now, this is where we, we just go along like fish swimming with the current with our society. Because marriage is going to be hard. It is. I've told you last week a lot about some of the challenges Gail and I had. Now, I know 5% of you, 10% of you, you've had an easy marriage. Don't take credit yourself. That's just God's gift to you. You know, just God bless you with an easy marriage. But most of us, it's hard. It's challenging. And, and that requires some work. And if, at the outset, uh, you, you see it as an option to divorce, if it gets hard, you're going to divorce. Just about all of us. But if you, from the outset, if you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be married to that person, uh, come what may. And that is, in fact, what we solemnly promise that woman or that man on the day of our wedding before our closest friends and family and before Almighty God. The Bible says it is God who joins, not the pastor. God joins them. You said something like this. You said, I, Bob... Take you, Sue, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. This is my solemn vow. You made that promise to another human being made in the image of God before all creation. And God will hold you to it. I know there are biblical grounds for divorce. There are few and far between. And, 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 and Christians are largely ignoring what the Bible says. Church, our charge. God says to us in love, in tender love, he says, I hate divorce because The human heart was not designed for that kind of trauma and pain, nor for the hearts of your kids. And so what I would call us to is we're going to be different. We need the grace of God. We need the Spirit of God to do some fundamental changing, healing, transforming, forgiveness, humility, other-centeredness. We need the Spirit of God to invade our lives, but He can do it if you're willing. He can. Okay, third principle, oneness. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's not just physical oneness. It's a term that would embrace every kind of oneness, physically, emotionally, relationally, socially, mentally, uh, spiritually. Did I say that? All kinds of oneness. So, you know, you, you really are missing what marriage is about. If you just think of it as physical oneness, this is a oneness that satisfies your soul, and that is the glory of marriage. Right there, 24C, you want to know the heart of marriage, the grandeur of marriage, the glory of marriage, right there. It is the kind of oneness, intimacy, closeness that you long for inside, unless you've had a calling and a gift to celibacy. So they will become, over time, over the rest of their lives, one flesh. And, and God's ideal for every marriage is a shared life. Uh, this uh, 
closeness. Now, here's what happens. Uh, we get married, and we're you know, all about you know, getting close and living life together, but life sets in, and the husband is, you know, gets busy with his career and gets focused there, and maybe the wife gets busy with raising kids, and there's bills to pay and all kind of things, and they drift. And every time a couple drifts, they drift apart. It is entropy. It is a fallen world. It's just the way the universe runs down. You don't drift together. You drift apart unless you intentionally pursue the one flesh marriage that God's called you to. That means that you're just looking for ways to build oneness between each other. Every shared interest, every shared experience is like a, you add another strand to a cable that binds you ever closer together. If you live self-separate lives or selfish lives, you shatter God's dream for, for marriage and oneness. And no wonder it, it, it can be so bad. But this is God's purpose and dream. And so some of you need to recalibrate. Oh, okay, I didn't get that. Uh, this is what marriage is all about. Shared life, each for the other, both for God. Pursuing oneness in every way. Doesn't mean you're the same, but it means you're together. And you are looking out for her. And she's looking out for you. So what have we seen in marriage? Uh, in Genesis 2, 18 through 25, we're in, eight, in verse 18. The first word is the word helper. My deep perspective, help that woman, help that man become everything they can be before God. Especially help them to grow spiritually. Secondly, we see in 19 through 23 that, that we fully receive the spouse that God's given us. Fully receive that spouse. She's got, he's got everything you need. And then in 24, we see these three basic principles we leave. We're, we're not emotionally dependent upon our parents. If your spouse does not feel like the most important person in your life, something's wrong. That includes your kids. That includes your parents. Starts the security, the foundation. Starts husband and wife. The oneness of that. Cleave, decide, we're going to be married the rest of our lives. We might as well... Uh, Roll up our sleeves and work through it. That's what love involves, sacrificial effort that you submit, you sacrifice for the good and for the sake of the other one. And then the process, the increasing process of becoming one flesh, intimate, united, uh, one the rest of your life. And, if, and as that happens, that is a beautiful thing, beautiful for us and beautiful for the universe to see a picture of the way God loves us, the sacred romance. There is a little story about marriage that I particularly like. It's a true story, and it's told by a surgeon who just had operated on a woman. And this is what the surgeon writes. His name is Richard Seltzer. He said, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor from her cheek, I had cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have created, 
who gaze at each other and touch each other so generously, so greedily? She asks, will my mouth always be like this? I say, yes, it will be. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. The Bible says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And it is a holy gift from God. God's dream for every single marriage, the ones here in this room today, the ones that will take place in the future, God's dream for your marriage is that it reflects the beauty of his love for us. That means his dream for you is not a good marriage, but a great marriage, a fabulous marriage. Make that your dream too. Determine that you will follow what the Bible says and not what man says. And that you will depend not on your own power, but on the power of the risen Christ to give you grace to live this out. And it will be for your joy and for God's glory. Stand with me, please. Lord, would you please strengthen, bless, and heal our marriages. If they're good ones, Lord, may they be even better. If they're struggling and boring, may they be transformed. Lord, if they are desperate, would you work a miracle and give hope? Friend, if you're in the room and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to receive this kind of love that God has for you. Just breathe a prayer and say, yes, Jesus, I need a Savior. Friend, if you're married and you've gotten off course, this is time to breathe a prayer to God. Lord, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that I have so poorly reflected your vision of marriage. And if so, you probably need to get along with your spouse and later today and confess that. Lord, I pray that you would revitalize and renew marriages for your glory and for the sake of our kids. Lord, these are our prayers. We pray them in Christ's name and believe that you hear us. Amen.